Happy Mother's Day, mothers. There's a mother in Austin, Texas, who, who's come up with things that she's learned from her children. And she says, this is honest, no kidding about it. And so for those who already have children past this age, this may seem funny. For those who have children this age, this may not seem very funny. For those who have children nearing this age, this is a warning. And for those who have not yet had children, this is birth control. <laughs> this mother says 10 things. Number one, if you hook a dog leash over a ceiling fan, the motor is not strong enough to rotate a 42-pound boy wearing Batman underwear and a Superman cape. It is strong enough, however, if tied to a paint can to spread paint on all four walls of a 20 by 20 foot room. Number two, she says a king-size waterbed holds enough water to fill a 2,000 square foot house four inches deep. Number three, when you hear the toilet flush and the words, uh-oh, it's already too late. Number four, certain Legos will pass through the digestive tract of a four-year-old boy. Number five, Play-Doh and microwave should never be used in the same sentence. Number six, super glue is forever. Number seven, you probably do not want to know what that odor is. Number eight, the spin cycle on the washing machine does not make earthworms dizzy. <laughs> Number nine, the spin cycle on the washing machine will make cats dizzy. Number 10, cats throw up twice their body weight when dizzy. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. I begin this morning by talking about numbers. Our lives are filled with numbers. Every year we file our income taxes, pages and pages and pages of numbers. And when it's finally prepared, we send it off to the Internal Revenue Service with our social security number on it. And the IRS, they take all those numbers and they put them into a computer along with the numbers of millions and millions of other people, and to them we become a number. The government knows us by our tax number. The state knows us by our driver's license number. The bank knows us by our account number. And when we retire, we are known by our social security number. And the list goes on and on and on. In fact, sometimes I wonder if anybody knows us at all without a number. And that is why this morning's gospel reading is so significant because it tells us that God knows us. In fact, it tells us God knows us better than we know ourselves and that is very important for us to remember. We've reached the midpoint of our Easter season 
we've come to the Lord's Day, unofficially called Good Shepherd Sunday, because every year at this time, on this fourth Sunday in Easter, whether we are in lectionary A, B, or C, we read from a section of John chapter 10, which is famous, famously known as the Good Shepherd Discourse. The scripture readings on this Sunday always have something to do with the shepherd and the sheep. The same good shepherd who leads us and guides us and listens to our prayers. It is clear from Psalm 23 today that the writer, the author, King David, wants to tell us that God is intimately involved in our lives. God knows what is happening in our lives. He knows what trouble has come our way. He knows how weak we are when we face temptations. He knows when we are sad or depressed or upset or guilt-ridden. He knows when we are struggling with disease or sickness, sometimes fearing that death is just right around the corner. We can say that he knows every need that we might have. And more than that, the gospel tells us that the good shepherd knows each one of us by name. God knows every single one of us by name, including the millions and millions who have gone before us and the millions and millions who have gone after us. And I know that there are, have always been people who have a good memory with names. There was Napoleon who knew thousands of his soldiers by name. There was Charles Schwab, who knew the, the names of all 8,000 of his employees at Homestead Mill. There's Charles Eliot, who during his 40 years as president of Harvard, earned the reputation of knowing all the students by name each and every year. But can you imagine Jesus Christ knowing all of his sheep by name. Millions, millions, millions. No wonder we call him Master and Lord and Savior. God watches over his flock and he calls us each by name. But more than that, he also sets an example for us to follow. Sometimes God calls us beyond the flock into the role of a shepherd in our homes, in our workplaces, wherever we are, we might be called to take on the role of a shepherd. And sometimes being a shepherd might seem very insignificant and ordinary. We might not even realize we're taking on the role of a shepherd. In his book, Finding God at Home, Ernest Borier tells of a woman named Sarah. She lived a very humble life, yet she lived it with purpose. So much purpose that she influenced everyone around her. Sarah was born way back in 1906, the last of eight children. Her father was a coal miner, and her mother ran a boarding house for coal miners. And Sarah spent much of her time growing up those years working in the boarding house, playing with her brothers and sisters. And then at the age of 18, she married a man from Italy. 
She had only met him three times before, but his family knew her family back in the old country, so it was considered the proper thing to do. Sarah and her husband moved to the city where he opened up a barber shop and they started a family. First was born a son and then a daughter. But something was different about their third child, who was also a son. He was diagnosed as having muscular dystrophy, a horrible disease that would destroy his muscles, a disease that would render him unable to care for himself in even the smallest of ways. Doctors predicted that the boy would die before his fifth birthday. All of this was in the midst of the Great Depression when there was barely enough money for the necessities of life and this third child would need extensive medical care for his condition. And so Sarah went to work. She took on many jobs such as cleaning houses, baking bread, doing people's laundry for them. Years passed and the little boy outlived his fifth birthday and his sixth and his seventh. Sarah did whatever she could possibly do to care for her afflicted child. She even wrote to President Roosevelt hoping that his own infirmities would give him compassion for others who were suffering like her son. The president arranged for her boy to be sent to a prestigious clinic in Maryland. So Sarah took her son to this clinic where the astonished doctors told her that the boy's continued, continued survival and the slow disease progression were nothing short of a miracle. Evidently, Sarah's loving care was keeping her son alive and in fair condition. And so the doctors, they suggested that Sarah take her child home, continue to care for him in the manner in which she had already been caring for him. For that seemed to work some kind of magic that the doctors could not match. At the age of 14, Sarah's son died. Her husband took to his bed with grief, and he himself died six months later. So now, in addition to her regular jobs, Sarah began taking classes at the beauty school and eventually turned her husband's barber shop into a beauty salon. In this way, she supported her children. But something kept nagging at Sarah. Throughout the years of her son's illness, Sarah had spent much time in the wards of the hospitals, and she was aware that there were many suffering children in these wards who had no one to visit them. And so Sarah began visiting the wards that the children were in at the local hospitals to talk to the children, to let the children know that someone cared. But the hospitals had a strict policy in those days of only allowing family members to visit. So Sarah even it was eventually barred from the wards of the hospitals. When Sarah protested, that many of these children didn't have any family. The hospital staff told her that many of these children weren't used to that kind of caring. And if they get out of the hospital, they won't, have, they won't know what to do because they won't have anyone to care for them. 
Well, Sarah left that hospital that night and she sat down on a park bench and she just cried and cried and cried. And then Sarah resolved to do something, something that would show love and care to the children who had no one else to love them. And so Sarah became a foster mother and her house became a home to many young girls who needed help. And Sarah's life followed a very simple routine Every morning she would get up, go to early mass, come home, cook breakfast for her foster children. Next, she would work at her beauty parlor and then she would go home and bake bread. Sarah's bread was her gift to the world around her. Sarah never baked bread for herself. Instead, she gave away her loaves to churches and to soup kitchens, to family and friends and neighbors in need. One day, Sarah got a call from one of her granddaughters asking her to go to afternoon mass with her. And when Sarah showed up at the church that afternoon, she saw her whole family waiting for her. And they led her into the church and it was filled with Sarah's family and friends, neighbors and former and current foster children. Some people had traveled hours and hours to be there And some were friends that Sarah hadn't seen in many years. When she entered the church, they all stood up and they all clapped. And Sarah stood there crying tears of humble joy. Her youngest great-grandchild walked up to her and presented her with a bouquet of flowers. Here, great-grandma, these are yours. And Sarah graciously received the flowers. And without a moment's hesitation, she walked to the front of the church and she gently placed the flowers in front of a statue of Jesus. And she softly said, here, Jesus, these are yours. Folks, that's what it's like to be a sheep that follows the shepherd. Sometimes very ordinary, sometimes extraordinary. Christ Jesus is the good shepherd. He watches over his sheep and he knows each and every one of us by name. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.